Hello and welcome to the 354th episode of the Creighton Crowbar. It is Thursday, the 14th of January, on the date on which we are recording this. And <laughs> I'm Alex Wiltshire. And tonight, oh, I'm so pleased to say, we've got a double Tommer. Oh, yeah. Tom Francis is here. Hello. And Tom Senior is too. Good day, everyone, and Happy New Year. It's the first oh, proper new Creighton Crowbar of the, new, of, the, of the new year, which is great. Congratulations, everyone. We made it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> We've made it this far. Yeah. <laughs> We've done it. That's the the bar for success has lowered and lowered, hasn't it, over the last year? <laughs> to sure. where we're still alive. Hooray! Yeah. We finished it. We finished it. <laughs> Except for it goes on. But, you know, never mind. Um, uh, and the news goes on too. Um, it feels like the news that, that we finished the year off with uh, um, continues. Um I was interested to see that um, we've we now know exactly what's in the future for Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. By exactly, Alex. Do you <laughs> well, I mean, mean exactly? I've seen I've seen a diagram. <laughs> Could you describe that diagram to to everyone if, if they haven't seen it? Uh, it there's yellow. There's yes. a lot of yellow. Mm-hmm. There's some black. Um, and there's like a sort of there's a sort of there's 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 two two thousand and twenty. And then there's 2021 is written on the diagram. And then in between, there's not much information. <laughs> there's actually, so I, there's, there's an entire sort of like, I don't know, I'd say it's like a six, six inch long on my PC screen uh, patch that is just sort of like a hash pattern. And I, I wish I could turn that into my bosses as a strategy. <laughs> document uh it just it says multiple updates and improvements across the stretch of what looks like almost all of 2021 (laughs) yeah i feel like uh this graph was not the best way to kind of (laughs) describe what they're planning to do with the game i i I really wanted to succeed though as well like i'm sort of back in it yeah and i'm holding off on playing it until it's in a better state so this is actually useful for me just in the sense that it doesn't tell me when i'll be able to play it but it does appear from this that there is going to be two major patches, 1.1 or 1.2. And after 1.2, they're going to do multiple updates and improvements, which I would have said is roughly what a patch is, but I guess they mean something else by that. Um, <laughs> mm. But I, I infer from this that patch 1.2 is what I should be waiting for. Like once that's done, they're sort of done fixing it for a while and the rest is going to be sort of adding stuff rather than fixing things. Um, but who the hell knows when 1.2 will be. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, I've been playing it a lot on PS4 and I've actually been really enjoying it like thanks to like knowing how buggy it is when bugs happen they're sort of quite amusing in a, a bethesda game sort of way um obviously that's not really acceptable <laughs> for the amount of money that you have to pay to access the game but it's quite funny when i'm sort of in the middle of a mission and i'm riding a, a bike and bikes are really fun in that game and then my bike just sort of like hurtles suddenly uh 200 feet vertically upwards into the air and i sort of like <laughs> spin around looking at the skyscrapers and, and I, I'm, I'm, well <laughs> I think, well, I guess I failed this mission then <laughs> because of that. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a kind of entertainment, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, I'm looking forward to it being fixed because it's a beautiful place to actually explore. I mean, the, the PlayStation 4 version has been uh, identified as being, you know, like a, a consumer rights disaster if you follow the general hoo-ha. Like, you know, I mean, how, how much worse is it than, did you play Witcher 3 on, on PS4? No, only on PC for me. Because I I did, and that was pretty buggy, and it really didn't perform very well. Um, and it got improved over time, and 
you know, you kind of rolled with it. It didn't have this kind of aura of, uh, you know, disaster ripoff, which cyberpunk has around it at the moment. I'm just sort of wondering, like, from your experience, like, if 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 you hadn't been following the news, would you have been disappointed in in your purchase of it? I think there's kind of a the sheer amount of marketing that's gone into this game for so so long, just invites this backlash when things aren't right. And like, that's not to excuse it at all because it is like it is just busted in loads of ways. And I think like it, in actually fundamental systemic ways in terms of how like the skills work and how stealth works, I think like there's loads of stuff that's just wrong about it that yeah. will probably never be fixed. Um, but in terms of the actual bug fixes and presentation and frame rate and all that stuff, um, I I always kind of expected that. But I think that's because like after like years of covering games of this sort of scope, that's what always happens unless it's like a Rockstar game or something where they just have so much resource to throw at it. Um, I always expect bugs. I always expect that kind of stuff. So my bar is lower. But I think, it did, again, the weight of marketing has hurt it almost, I think. Yeah, but like you say, Rockstar, like this is because I think the interesting, that's a really interesting thing to say because, I mean, obviously Cyberpunk is coming out right at the end of PS4's life, you know, after the the release of, the, you know, PS5. And, you know, we have, we shouldn't really have too many expectations of the PS4 being, uh, you know, the, the best way to play any kind of game right now. Um, um, and then if you think about, because uh, I, I played um, uh, Grand Theft Auto V on the PS3, and mm. frame rate on that was didn't really get above like 20 25 like it was pretty you know it, it functioned i don't remember any bugs and things but it the performance was ropey at the end and that that was all the way through and and that was released right at the end of ps3's life and um like i don't know in terms of the old generation consoles like it does feel odd to be saying that still i sort of see them as quite advanced still but um they, you know, we that that's kind of an unreasonable expectation in some ways. I feel. Yeah, I, I think it's sort of like ooh, industry watchers or whatever you want to call us. Um, we we have the uh, different expectations to a customer who puts down seventy pounds for a thing. Yeah, that's true. On a console, um, and it's the big blockbuster of the season, and maybe they just don't. They maybe they only buy like three games a year, and this one is just like in such a different state to the other games they buy. I mean, that, that there's a different standard there. I think for. Yeah, this yeah. level of game when it comes to like mainstream interest yeah yeah it's also in the context of like all their they delayed it so many times and every time their their reasoning was like oh, oh you know it's ready it is done like we said it was but actually we just need a little bit more to just get it to the absolute top level of quality that we know you're all expecting <laughs> and it's just right. every time yeah. they did it i was even back then i was thinking just just stop telling us dates like you don't need you just made like a bad news factory of just setting dates that you then can't hit and then have to delay and then after all that, the fact that it, the main problem with it is it seems incredibly unfinished uh, just seemed like, for fuck's sake, what are you doing? Just, <laughs> just stop telling us dates. Just wait until you've actually made the game, then announce a date. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I didn't actually watch the video, but I did read a few things about it where the uh, CG Project um, uh, co-founder, and I'm not going to pronounce his name right, Marcin Iwinski, I'm not quite sure yet. Martin, Martian. Uh, he talked about um, he he talked about uh, the problems right towards launch. One of the things he talked about was how they really did believe. He claimed that um, the the PS4 you know, version with PS and Xbox 
One X or Xbox One version were going to release in a better form because towards the end of development, um, they were increasing in quality day by day as as because this game was developed on four PC initially or on PC initially and you know and so therefore it was a matter of of going back to the game to to release it for those consoles. But it was they but they felt confident because day by day they're increasing in in quality and a lot of the performance issues were going away. Um and and so it was a shock to them that at, at release that you know it, it wasn't really wasn't what they were hoping for. Um but pointed out very quickly after that was the fact that um that release review copies were not released to the mm. press until two days before release. And then yeah, even then nobody could uh uh, release any footage of their games they had to use pre-roll if that was if if they were so confident in what they were doing why was that the case and also I think yeah. the, the day one patch did not improve on performance in any kind of market way which which was also you know not <laughs> didn't really seem to corroborate his point it's it's sad I've, um, it is sad it is sad because like, there are parts when i'm cruising through that world and it's like, you know, it's dusk and it's slowly turning into night and see all the lights turn on in a cool motorbike. And uh, it's revving up and it sounds exactly like the bike from Akira. I'm like, yeah, I'm in the cyber world now, uh, as I think you once said, uh, Alex, <laughs> on the podcast. Um, and there's, there's a real kind of, it could be like a, such a sumptuous, brilliant realization of that world. And I think like the stories are kind of not read, revelatory but they're not as cringeworthy as i was expecting to be honest even though they do have to kind of emulate a lot of the kind of uh the language of the original sort of 80s 90s uh pen and paper rpg versions of that game and that kind of lingo well i don't like, i don't think it's offensive in any way it just sounds a bit silly when people are saying it <laughs> um but i've I, I, I actually played it quite a lot on ps4 but i've got ps4 pro so a lot of the performance issues are kind of ironed out by that um I think there's a good game in there, but I think it's like there's a, a good 79 out of 100 game in there. Um, but to get past that, I think like they're going to have. To, I think a lot of the systems will just have to be completely redesigned, <laughs> which is um, mm. brutal. But I think I mean I'll, I'll stand by that. I've been watching uh, a sort of dead end thrills of Duncan Harris, who's a who's an old time. Oh, of course, um, yeah, it looks incredible. He's so he he uh, uh, takes screenshots under the name of Dead End Thrills, and um, he has gone to town. <laughs> he hadn't he he hadn't really done too much public stuff recently, and uh, and he told me that he um as soon as he got into it and like he actually he said oh, I actually played that game properly because normally he tears games to pieces yeah, in order yeah. to um to release the camera in them, and it usually means that that part of that process is to um. Uh, fly through the world, go to any space possible. He never plays games properly. Um, in this one, he has been playing it properly and he's been taking some amazing shots. It does, yeah. yeah that's it's really, sort of, it's it's really cool. Like, when you, there's a lot of Blade Runner in it as well, obviously. Because um, those two kind of worlds talk to each other. So when you go out of the city, I find, I find the kind of... Um, sort of fringe areas of the game much much more interesting than for example gta 5's kind of open uh open areas beyond the city edges uh, mm. because there are kind of like there are groups there who are kind of 
hanging on by a thread, but they're also kind of rebels and they just hate Night City and everything it represents and they're trying to rebel against it. Uh, and much of it is just sort of, uh, as they call it in Blade Runner, the kipple, which is just everywhere, that, just landfills of just crap <laughs> that people have dumped there. Uh, and it looks incredible and is absolutely like, in terms of atmosphere, it's spot on. Uh, but this epitomizes the game for me because actually navigating that is repeatedly pressing jump and getting stuck on objects <laughs> over and over again. Uh, for so it's like a short ride. So I could ride my bike into there, and it would mean to get stuck on something and fly off into the sea, you know, the skybox and never, never to be seen again. Um, and then I'll sort of like be hopping, bunny hopping over it and desperately trying to get up uh, a slope or something full of these spiky uh, bits of trash, futuristic trash. And then just like just get stuck there and have to reload, <laughs> and it's just yeah, it's almost like a style. Not it's not even style over substance. It's it's style over functionality. <laughs> <laughs> it's style over basic functionality. Uh, I think that's a lot of uh, what I've experienced with that game. Um, that I think I don't think you can patch that out. <laughs> I think that's just it's just the way it is now. <laughs> yeah. What's the other news floating around the ether? There was a, uh, a test weekend for some DLC for Monster Train, um, and so they've done they did quite a big free update not long ago for Monster Train, um, which was added new champions for each um, faction. Uh, so Monster Train's a, a card based roguelike, and you pick two factions when you play. One of which is going to be is going to have your champion, and the other one is just sort of a backup. You get some of their cards. Um, so they've already done that. And then the DLC actually adds a whole new faction. And that's cool because um, uh, it's two new champions. It's a whole new faction and, and all the cards that come with them. You know, Each faction has a completely unique set of cards. But also the way you play Monster Train, because you're combining factions, it's kind of like there are, um, what, like six yeah. new combinations to try? Because now you yeah. can try the, the the new ones are called the Wormkin. Um, it's about with a U. And uh, yeah, Wormkin plus Hellhorned is a thing. Well, Wormkin plus Stygian is a thing. Wormkin plus Awoken is a thing. Um, and they're cool. They also added a bunch of stuff um, for new relics for all the, the factions. Um, I think one new card for every faction and also um, a new kind of optional extra difficulty thing that... Uh, as you go along, you can sort of choose to take on shards, and shards are going to um, make everything harder. Just just add extra difficult enemies into the into future runs for the rest of your run. Um, so basically, if your run's going well, you can kind of choose to take on difficulty during the run, uh, which oh, is right. a so good concept. Not I think you just preset. That's nice. No, yeah, um, but interestingly, they are not just. You don't just take them on for the for the hell of it. You. Uh, get them, you get a reward as well. And so Monster Train does a lot of this. Like every fight has an optional extra difficulty thing where it'll make it harder, but you get a better reward. And I'm always a bit iffy on it as a game design principle because it's um, it's snowballing, basically. Like if, if you've got a great deck and you're playing at too low difficulty and things are going well for you, then you can afford to take on these extra uh, extra difficulties. And as a result of that, you'll get a big chunk of cash or an extra relic or something that then makes your whole deck more powerful and, and potentially it can make, um, run away with it that way. I, The way that manifests in practice for me is I feel like if I'm not taking those on, if I'm not able to take on the op optional extra difficulty, then I'm failing. 
uh, and I'll probably mm. I probably won't make it at all because now you know I was already already struggling, and now I also don't get four hundred extra gold, which would have been a huge deal. Um, but this the shards thing, it doesn't really feel like that because it's totally optional. Um, it's sort of the default is to take no shards, um, whereas I feel like the the um, I think they're called pacts, the optional extra difficulty for each fight that was already in the game. Uh, those I feel like the default is to take them because um, certainly early on they they pretty easy to to deal with the shards the rewards you get for them sometimes it's just a relic like you just get a free relic and take 10 extra shards um or take you get 100 gold and and 10 extra shards and the shards are the downside because they're going to make things harder but then there's also like a special temple thing you can stop at which um lets you uh you can gain some shards in exchange for making a card way better. Like one of the things is just reduce the cost of a spell by two, I think it is, or maybe even reduce it down to zero. Um, and that's, that doesn't count as an upgrade, doesn't use up an upgrade slot. Um, and then there's the one of the big new things is that you can merge units and merge cards. Um, and so what that means is you kind of, for a unit, you kind of splice the, the essence, they call it, of one unit uh, onto another one. So if it's a unit that, like there's a unit that uh, for the Awoken that hits three times. So it has multi-strike two. Um, and I don't know for sure, but the essence of that is probably something like it gives multi-strike one to to whatever unit you splice it with. So uh, take your big tough guy who had to, has like a big damage single attack, and then you add, you splice it with the, the multi-strike unit. And now that big damage is going to hit twice um it won't hit three times but it'll hit twice something like that like it's usually a lesser version of what they have like there's a unit that every time you cast a spell it gains three armor or something and i think its essence is that whatever unit you splice it with will now gain one armor each time you cast a spell um but it's kind of a fun concept because monster train is all about making the possibility space really huge in terms of what you could do like the, the number of different upgrades and the number of different units you could plug them into um, it feels like you are being asked to invent units, like, you know, come up with some design, think about what you've got and, and invent some cool solution to, um, make it super powerful. Um, I've only done it a few times and it's splicing. You can also combine spells and that just like stacks both their effects. But I found that quite, um, disappointing the first time I did it because the cards I chose to combine were ones I'd upgraded. They were like my my superstar cards um, that I'd already invested loads of money into. And the resulting card ignored all the upgrades um, and oh, it also cost two energy to play, whereas both the cards I combined were free. Um, so you basically and, killed the cards. Well, no. I, that's what I, that My immediate reaction was like, oh, fuck, that, that's completely ruined my run because I just lost my two best cards and I've got shit one. But actually... And it, in fairness, it did tell me this twice, but I completely forgot. Uh, it it doesn't use up the original cards. So um, you still have the originals as well. So okay. you just have a new card that's like uh, that's combined with those. And the fact that it it's only the base cards that get combined. I think the reason it costs two energy is probably both those cards originally cost one energy each, but I had upgraded them to, to be free. Um, and of course, the upgrades weren't factored in, so it became an expensive, quite boring card. <laughs> but if I'd known how it worked, I think there's there's potential there to, you know, just think of, you know, which two spells are really good to cast together, and then after you've combined them, then you want to upgrade the combined card. Um, I do remember that. So that costs shards to do because it's potentially quite powerful. Um, 
Interestingly, if you duplicate that card, that costs shards too. So, uh, which is kind of a a rule break. Every other time that you can duplicate a card, it's free. Like it doesn't cost you what the original card cost. It just does it. But I think because those, they must have realized those are so potentially powerful that that they can't let you just duplicate them um, and uh, without taking on extra difficulty. So yeah, that stuff is cool. I haven't, I didn't get deep enough into it in the in the free weekend they did. Um, and now it's back. It's out of beta now. You can't, oh, sorry, it's not out of beta. Uh, the, the closed beta is over, so you can't play it currently because uh, it's also not finished. Um, but when it is released, uh, you'll be able to buy it. Uh, the new faction, the Worms, are um, their new mechanic is, I've got to get all this fantasy terminology right, it's Echoes. <laughs> um, oh, it's like, by Worms. So many... Are we talking, are we talking uh, I, trying to think of, like a scientific word for little wriggly things, or we're talking <laughs> dragons. <laughs> um, dragons. Uh, to be honest, neither. They the they're kind of um, <laughs> their visual design wasn't super memorable to me compared to like compared to those wax boys. Which well, the wax the boys. I mean, like, where can you go from there? <laughs> How can you compete with the wax boys? Um, <laughs> they just sort of look like generic fantasy monsters to me, with a lot of like tendril kind of bits to them um one of their their main mechanics is that uh you can if you play a card that has the infused property which all of your starting cards will have um you add an echo to that floor and the echo is kind of like this floor kind of has some energy imbued in it at that point and then the other cards will either spend those echoes or they will just benefit from them and to me the most powerful thing uh, it seems to be that one of the champion upgrades is um, that they will gain plus five attack for every echo on the current floor and you can um, build it up to like five echoes so they're just getting plus 25 attack and they also do that to all friendly units so they make all friendly units do plus five attack for every echo so all your friendly units are getting plus 25 attack and if you obviously put like a multi-strike uh, unit there that's going to benefit from that three times so it's getting plus 75 attack essentially um, yeah. And that seems really powerful, especially because one of the other units is um, a dude who gains uh, armor and attack every time you add an echo to the floor. So every time you add an echo, he's gaining that. But then if he's on the same floor as the champion, the champion's also giving him five attack for that. Uh, And so he can just snowball out of control. Um, And obviously you put multi-strike on him, you put the, the... big stone that makes him super powerful and super tough on him um and that all just seems to to stack and and synergize super well all the stuff that actually spends echoes never seemed worth it to me because it's like i say just those you benefit so much from those and you have to choose where to invest your echoes you don't get them for free you know you've got to play a card to make it happen and so even when i tried to like have a you know my killer main floor with all these guys who are getting super powerful from all the echoes and just leaving the echoes there. Um, and then I thought about having like a second floor where, okay, on this floor, I have things that spend echoes that give me sort of different benefits. Um, and I'll just put some echoes on that floor whenever I can. Uh, that didn't really work out because really you just want to keep putting your echoes on the place where it's going to uh, benefit for free uh, because you can do that. Um, you can spend echoes over your maximum, even though the, the maximum is five, you can still stack them up above that and it'll just it'll reset down to five next turn so 
you can't permanently go over that, but you can for this turn when when that's affecting your attack so much and your attack is on like the first floor and you've got shitloads of enemies you want to chew through, that's kind of what you want to do is you just want to stack up loads of echoes, get loads of damage and kill everything. Um, so to me, the balance doesn't feel right yet for, for of things that benefit from echoes versus things that actually spend them. Um, but I often feel that with Monster Train. I often have that that feeling like imps for the hellhorn you know it just seems like yeah. everything else the hellhorn can do is way better than using imps <laughs> and imps were uh i think completely useless until the recent update the recent update did add a, an imp based hero and i've i've had some wins with her now so it's possible to make imps work but it still feels like um you're working it against the grain like it's um you'd be better off just ignoring it and just going with the thing that seems super overpowered because it is <laughs> yeah it's nice to see it. uh continuing like the, the did you did you play what what um other factions did you play with the worms did you did you find any nice little um yeah things? i was trying um with the umbra because i wanted them to eat morsels <laughs> and get more powerful um what else did i do i think i did awoken uh i think awoken a kind of uh my favorite maybe just because mm. They have so many cards that buff your units, like they just give them extra attack or give them extra damage and and heal them and things. And if you can do all of those things, then you're kind of set. <laughs> um, I think I might have done one with um, the Wax Guys because the Wax Guys have those dregs who are just, they take up a single space on your floor and they do some damage. And because I'm, I've got all the stuff that massively boosts everyone's damage, that's quite an efficient way of just stacking it all up. But I mostly, because the the worm guys are new, I was mostly just using their units and and because I wanted to try them all out um, and kind of ignoring the support faction a bit. Yeah. How's the game feeling in general? Does it does it the rest of the game? Does it feel like the game that um, how it played uh, back of when it came out was that early last year? Can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember when it was either. It must have been last year because it was my game of the year. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, this weekend, um, uh, I must admit, it, it got me back in. Like, after <laughs> I could no longer play the DLC, I was like, fuck, but I still want to play it. Uh, I guess I'll just play regular Monster Train. And then I started to discover, I think I just, when the big update came out, I think I just breezed through it and tried a bunch of things. I think I probably tried every hero once, uh, every new champion once. But uh, some of them I really hadn't explored. And of course, every champion has three upgrade paths and you can only ever use two of them in a run, I think. Mm. Is that right? Mm. Uh, anyway, that's usually how it works out. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, maybe, hmm. Is it... I mean, you, you only get <laughs> anyway. two choices at a time. Like it might yes. expose all three of them to you, but you only at any other one time, you only get choosing between two. Uh, yeah, I think I think you can have a bit of all three, but you usually end up... Going with you kind of want because, to double down on the things that you've already yeah, invested in. Exactly. Yeah. You're always offered an upgrade to one you already have, and the upgrades are really powerful. Um, but yeah, I had not really um, uh, played around with the new Awoken champion. Um, and like, yeah, Awoken are the plant guys who, who can heal and buff their units really well. And the new champion is fucking insane. I didn't appreciate this. He, I just didn't know about some of his upgrades. I think I chose badly the first time I played with him and I didn't win the run. Um, but one of his upgrade paths, he gains quick, which means he attacks before the enemies. And so does everyone else on the floor. All of your other units also gain quick. Okay. And so all of your units are attacking before all of the enemies. 
And if you do enough damage to wipe them out, then the enemies don't do any damage at all. And so it's a classic, like the best defense is a good offense. If you're if you're powerful enough, you will also take no damage. Of course, that's extremely difficult to do with just normal damage. But then one of his other upgrade paths is he gains sweep, which means he hits everyone. <laughs> his attacks hit everyone on the floor. And he doesn't give that to your to the rest of your units. So you still need um uh like uh, his damage um alone has to has to take care of that. But then often the way that the enemy for the enemy formations are is that there's a tough guy up front and then some fragile glass cannons in the back and that actually suits you perfectly because your sweep is going to hit all the fragile glass cannons and kill them before they can do anything and then whoever you put in front of him can do some single target damage to the first guy in line but then if you keep upgrading the quick path um he gains multi-strike and at that point because you're like you're playing as the awoken which like i say have all these cards that can buff your units there's one that just gives them 10 attack and minus two health and 10 attack on a multi-strike quick sweep unit is insane because that's 20 attack that hits everybody and it hits them before they can attack. And so I just, I've just been focusing on that and just duplicating that card, um, making it free, giving it holdover and just like every turn I am boosting his attack by 30, which effectively boosts it by 60 and that's hitting everybody. And so within like two or three turns, he's up to 160 damage or something. And that will kill basically anything in the game, except there isn't a boss before it can attack. <laughs> and so you just won. Also, his sweep attack is a really interesting like um, devil's bargain because the other thing it does is it roots the enemies, which means they don't leave the floor. And that's usually that's a great thing. Root is a positive thing to apply to enemies because you don't want them to ascend, right? But it is like it's all or nothing. It's like it's an all-in round in poker. You you're saying yeah. everyone <laughs> is going to stay here until one of us fucking dies, <laughs> and everyone I didn't kill last round, they're going to be in the same room as all of the new wave as well. Like it just stacks and stacks and stacks, um, which is so you scary. Put that in but awoken. yeah, awoken. Yeah, give them some I mean, stability. That's exactly yeah. I just I. The run I had today was really fun because I paired them with the wax guys. And one of the wax guys um, is a baron who gains health and attack every time anything dies on his floor. So I just gave him a shit ton of health and put him up front. And then he will tank all the damage so my my uh, champion won't take any. And my champion will be killing all the glass cannons. Every one of them is, is always giving the baron... Um, uh, extra health from that. I also had a relic that meant the front unit gains five max health every turn, which is crazy. Um, and usually, those uh, the Baron, the gaining health on death thing is is um, it's called harvest. Like when anything dies, including friendly units or enemy units, yeah. uh, he gains health. Usually, the only tricky thing about that is ensuring he's on the same floor as the things that die. But if your champion is hitting everybody and rooting them all to the spot, every single thing that <laughs> exists in this whole game is going to die on that floor. So he's going to get all the benefit from that. And he just gets absurdly tough. Um, <laughs> and in the background, my champion is getting absurdly powerful, absurdly fast, and it's quick, and it's sweep. Um, and yeah, it just seems like they let you have all the good stuff all in one place at once. Um, <laughs> and that's fun. I, I got up to like uh covenant five with that so far and i, I think i'm oh, just okay. going to keep doing that build and keep cranking up the difficulty and see how far i can take it how long how long is a, a run taking you at the moment um probably like 40 minutes okay maybe longer that's actually i'm just guessing actually <laughs> so that's my that's my main fear with the game because i just you know it's like committing to an hour because you can't really, you, I mean, you can, you can switch, you can kind of exit the game and you can come back to it, but 
you just I just completely lose the thread of what I was doing and, and it's just it's just a dead game if I do that um yeah but, the, but the, the time commitment was such that I just found it I think I've talked about it before but I find it really hard to commit to it yeah that's fair I actually played two games last night while watching the Mission Impossible movies <laughs> which is quite a good combination <laughs> all that excitement I'm surprised you didn't overload yourself Tom <laughs> well there's like anytime there's an action sequence happening you have to watch it because you can't infer what's going on from listening and then anytime there's dialogue you go back to playing monster train <laughs> <laughs> what have you been playing thomas i've been going back to assassin's creed valhalla uh and i've played a lot of it a lot more than i probably should have i think <laughs> <laughs> it's my uh current verdict it's very much a kind of mop up the map game uh, with cool axes, but quite a samey, repetitive vision of England that I enjoy much less than the previous two Assassin's Creed mm. games. Um, and also just like quite unsatisfying repetition of ideas from previous Assassin's Creed games that I'm just kind of bored of, like when it, especially when it comes to stealth and like just, you know, cutting alarm bells. And a lot of it still seems arbitrary and a bit sloppy and weird. So I don't know, I'm kind of, I'm still playing through it because I really want to see more of it. And there, there are moments where you actually venture into proper like Norse mythology and, and it, it gets a bit fantastical. And that stuff's sort of really, really great. Um, and I think there's a sort of Assassin's Creed where they could lean into that even more and make that the sort of main game almost. Uh, but... Uh, Overall, it just feels, it's feeling like a slog. I've basically been using it as a kind of podcast vehicle um, where I've just been listening to podcasts and also this is something I'll do at the same time. Um, but I think you've been playing it as well, Tom. Uh, I wonder what you thought of it. Yeah, I um, uh, I haven't been liking it, unfortunately. And mm. I, I can't tell how much of that is legit and how much of that is, um, uh, I don't know, Obviously, it's uh, any if you're not feeling a game, it's it's uh, usually the game's fault. But I feel like I turned against it really early, and uh, just the story really didn't grab me. The characters and the the dialogue just so, felt so rote and so boring. Mm. And that's a knife edge thing where if I if I'm not interested from the start then i start skipping stuff and then i'm never going to get interested because i'm not giving it a chance to actually <laughs> you know get interesting uh and i got to that that very fast with this i was just immediately like oh god i just don't care about this and i just start skipping all that stuff so um i can't comment on whether it gets any more interesting um i did get as far as getting to england and, and going down uh i liked the general sort of vibe of going down english rivers in a <laughs> longboat and uh sort of deciding where to stop and what to raid and stuff um but then yeah you said uh use the word arbitrary about the stealth and that felt that's very much my experience too i just i stealth is kind of everything for me in the assassin's creed game i that's how i'm going to play the whole thing um uh, as much as possible anyway and uh here i've just had so many cases where like i'll stab a guy right ne and it turns out there's a guy standing right next to him who i didn't see and he won't notice at all mm. and then a minute later i'm crouched in bushes and someone 40 meters away because i i started to draw my bow because i wanted to check whether a shot would kill somebody and just the instant i start to draw the bow not only does a guy sort of start to see me he just immediately aggros and he attacks and then the entire village is all on me uh yep. like 
instantly from range. And that's just kind of fatal. Like once that happens a few times, you're just like, well, I just can't engage with this because none of the, no intuition applies here. I can't sort of make arguments, uh, you know, make plans about what's going to um, uh, how I should approach something because I don't know what will happen if I do X because there's just no causality there. Yeah, that um, drawing the bow thing is particularly irritating because uh, A, why do you have to stand up to aim the bow? And also B, why yeah. does aiming the bow teach you the range of the thing that you're looking at? <laughs> yes. Mm. Uh, so like uh, it would be more elegant to like, equip the bow and then that the, the cursor changes when you mouse over someone and that it would like, turn red or something that suggests that you're within range and can shoot them. Um, but yeah, it, there's loads of little bits, like little minor points like that that actually really spoil the stealth for me. Uh, and, and of course, like um, I think on the Game of the Year podcast, we talked about Ghost of Tsushima and made mm. a really good point there, Tom, where you're saying where, okay, if you screw up, you can sort of like go back into stealth and reset. You can't do that in this yeah. game. You just can't. Like yeah. everyone's on alert and it, it, it just turns into a big scrap. And the combat system's fine, but not amazing. Um, so yeah, it, yeah. Hmm, There's something not quite there. I find it something very weird about the balance of it. Well, first of all, um, the... And I'm not usually the person saying this, but uh, I think there is a huge act of game design cowardice here <laughs> where they they got some pushback about the idea that that in Odyssey and um, Origins, that if there's someone sufficiently high level, you can't kill them with your Assassin's Blade because they're too high level and you don't do enough damage. And people didn't like that or there's some grumblings about it. And so in this game, they made it optional that you can do that. Like that's just a menu yeah. option of do you want do you want assassination to always kill people? Like that is a pretty fucking fundamental thing for you to mm. ask me to decide. I feel like that's your job as a game designer to figure out a system that that works there. And it 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 did uh, hurt the game for me because I was sneaking through a village on my way to a quest and it was higher level than me. And I looked at the preview of how much assassin damage I would do to somebody. And it was like 95% of their health bar. And yeah. so, and that's just like a standard enemy. So that's gonna be true for everybody. So I basically can't do this unless I go into the me menu options and turn on instant assassination. And then I'm like, well, okay, maybe I will. Cause uh, you know, all I'm gonna do otherwise is, is go, I'll ignore this village. I'll level up a little bit, then I'll come back and I'll do it then so you know what's the difference why not just turn it on so i did turn it on and i cleared up most of the village um and then i think i i got rumbled in stealth probably for some arbitrary reason and then i was in a fight and strangely in the fight it actually wasn't difficult for me to kill these guys even though they were like skull level um you know <laughs> like they're high enough level they don't even tell you what level there is i could kill a bunch of them i do enough damage to whittle them down but if any of them hit me it was instant death and that is a very frustrating like hmm. tightrope to walk. It's so annoying to just be like, especially because Assassin's Creed combat is never the cleanest. It's always a bit uh, arbitrary. And just you know, taking one straight hit and then it's all over uh, was a really horrible experience. And so I felt like, obviously I bear some of the responsibility for this because I turned on that menu option and I took on a village that the game was telling me don't take this on. But I also feel like the game kind of led me up that garden path. It was like, well, you know, there's just an option. You can just turn it. It's not a cheat or anything. It's just flick on the menu option. If you want to be able to kill everyone in one hit, then you can. And then when you do it, it's a horrible experience. Yeah, I feel like an armchair developer saying this, but surely if you're designing a settlement that a player's going to assault, that the... the uh factoring in the player's ability to instantly kill any of them from stealth should probably be a thing that you design the fort around <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's my instinct anyway uh and i do think that the game like I, i've not turned that on yet 
But I do find it very frustrating when I've like gone to a lot of effort to slowly creep up on someone. And as you say, I get this all the time. The, the stealth kill will do 95% damage. Then you have to stamp on them. Then the entire village is alerted. And that the rest of it, that's stealth over for that entire bit. Um, so I don't know, just like shit or get off the pot. Choose one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> did you, um, how did you like Odyssey? I really enjoyed Odyssey, but I think a, a lot of the heavy lifting there was uh, Cassandra and the world yeah. and how beautiful it was and it just the sense of exploration. This was true of um, uh, the one before as well in Egypt. Uh, and uh, Valhalla doesn't have that for me. Uh, I don't really care about Eivor, um, even though I think like the vocal performance is, is good, especially on the, um, the female Eivor. But... I don't care about her mission. In fact, she doesn't really have a mission. She just sort of like <laughs> troops around raiding stuff, which is kind of, I suppose that's true to the Vikings, but I kind of, there was much more to Cassandra to me, like interaction with the gods and her wit and the way that she kind yeah. of just bullied people and turned factions <laughs> against each other and, and the hunting, uh, hunting the sort of, I don't know what they're called, the Templars or the kind of, uh, Mistrons, whatever they were, <laughs> across the world. <laughs> the <laughs> cult of cosmos, you mean? <laughs> yes, that, that's that's the one. That's the one. Um, <laughs> Mistrons. <laughs> uh, and that was really, really fun. And there's a similar system in Valhalla, but I just don't care. And it's weird. I think that's a lot of that's just world building and it's kind of tone of the game that it's just a, a lot more sort of gloomy and less exciting and vibrant. Um, it's hard yeah. to put a finger on it. Yeah, I'm really curious to chase up some of those cult leads because that was the big thing in Odyssey. I loved Odyssey in general, and that was I talked about that knife edge on story stuff. Um, mm. And yeah, Cassandra definitely clinched that for me. Like I liked her, and I was on board uh, pretty early on, and that meant I I actually listened to all the dialogue rather than skipping it, and that, that gave it more opportunity to deepen that character and and make me care for her. And um, uh, and yeah, there was a bunch of uh, funny stuff in there. Uh, it's genuinely Eagle, funny. The joke about the eagle, uh, I can't fully describe it without just sort of trying to tell the joke, and I don't want to do that, so I'll, yeah, I'll yeah. find it for the show notes. But um, a joke where, where your eagle lands on your head at an opportune moment is, uh, is so well done. Um, and then, yeah, that, that cult of Cosmos, like the map of the cultists and, and seeing it all as like this uh, conspiracy web that you could just sort of mouse over any of these people and go and find them in the world and kill them. And that would um, that's how you make progress towards that was so exciting. And I know a lot of it was gated by level or gated mm. by plot progress and stuff like that. Here, uh, yeah, like you say, it's there. And I've, there's, I've got a target on my map that I can go and try and kill. I think he's in a super high level area, but I, I probably will, you know, have a go at that. Yeah, it didn't feel as exciting somehow. I think there's something about having... Uh, I've always felt... I feel this about Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag as well. Having an archipelago of places to explore where you sail mm. between bits and they're quite self-contained. I yeah, find it's that, that discreetness that I've found really mm, enjoyable. Because yeah. it, whereas like, everything is obviously... You know, England is obviously... It's just one big chunk of land and the, the sort of... Uh, the colours will change a little bit. But there was something about going around ancient Greece where, for example, one of those Cult of Cosmos people was just on a, a volcano island in the middle of nowhere. And that felt like <laughs> such an adventure sailing out there and be like, whoa, this is like a whole new environment. And yeah. This is just nuts. Um, and I, I just, I think almost the geography of England prevents that from happening. Yeah. Did you get the one on the boat? It's one who's no, just actually. sailing around on a fucking on a like massive warship of his own, and it's one of those ones with the like a million oars, those huge um, oh, wow, long cool. oars coming out of like a battleship. And just I just swam up to it, like I, I stopped my ship as close as I could get, 
you're supposed to destroy it in a naval battle, I think is the intended solution. But I was so interested to see, can I just like, I know where it's going. I'm going to park up ahead and I'm going to just bail from my ship and just swim to it. And then I scaled <laughs> the side of this massive, like you really start to see how huge these things are when you, when you climb them up, um, you know, uh, up close. And then I, the mast, uh, no, wait, what's it called? The prow uh, goes super high, uh, like kind of curls up into the sky, like, you know, uh, 50 meters or something. And I Whoa. scaled that and the target was standing directly beneath it. So I managed to do a drop assassination yes! from that right onto him in front of everybody. And it's just so fucking perfect. <laughs> so that's so, so cool. I think in Assassin's Creed 4, there are actually like ghost ships. They're like super yeah. secret boss ships in Four the very of corners of the map. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really good stuff. That was a good game. Yeah, it's a really good game. I love, I love AC4. I, Odyssey was brilliant as well. But I think that, that the, the islands just really, really, really do fit the map completion aspect of um, of a game like uh, Assassin's Creed because they just feel like little kind of chewable nuggets that you can go, right, I'm going to do this <laughs> one now. So you choose it. Yeah. It hasn't got that sort of... Like I think I'll go over here, sort of. I don't, and I, but I don't really know where here starts and where here will end, and I don't really have a like a, a, a an objective that I can set myself. But as an island, hey, like you know that that's so nicely self-contained. Yeah, the way that game starts out teaches that so well because it's just there's basically a tutorial island, um, which is actually just a quite a ridiculous place. It's got the biggest flippant statue you've ever seen on top of a mountain and and you know it's just inviting it's just sort of baiting the instincts of every player to go and climb to the top of that thing and of course there's a sink point up there and of course that like unlocks a load of new stuff it's just like i think it's pretty well designed like ge- geographically designed that whole game as far as i've played it so far but i think i'm only halfway through it it's enormous yeah i know i'm about a quarter of the way through and i've got 20 absolutely hours massive yeah. yeah i haven't i it's still on my on my pc just sitting there because i just know I will go back to it, but <laughs> at the right yeah, time. I I've did. Got a new... I Sorry, finished. Um, I finished Odyssey, but uh, I didn't finish the DLC, the the Elysium and Hades, and I think I added like three <laughs> other realms. <laughs> and that's defined by all of the world, and now you get all of the underworld as well. Yeah, that's it. Uh, you're right, Tom. Atlantis is is in there, and I think it's the last <laughs> one. I think you have to play through both the others before you get to it. And uh, I'd already done like the Atlant- Atlantis quest line in Odyssey. I thought I'd seen Al- Atlantis in the sense that you're going to see it. Yeah. Um, but I guess they actually built it as well. <laughs> Got that to look forward to. That's amazing, though. That's uh, that's the kind of the benefit of Assassin's Creed moving into more of a kind of mythological mindset than getting away from conspiracies and that kind of stuff. And the Templar assassin, uh, that really messy plot line that they sort of sustained for. 10 or so games, I don't know how long. Uh, and actually just moving into these, this much more kind of... The deeper into the past they go, the less they sort of refer to it, and the more they can be playful with it. And I, I think that mm. tonally that's really good for, for the series. Um, but Valhalla's not quite revealed its hand yet, I don't think, even though I'm about 40 hours in. <laughs> so <laughs> I think if it was going to reveal its hand, <laughs> it should probably have done it by now. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. I'm just looking at Metacritic right now, and... Um... Uh, Valhalla's Metascore is 80 and Odyssey's is 83 and to me there's like such a night and day difference between those games it's mm. wild that they got such similar reviews what about the um oh, what's the it's not called what's the Egyptian one called it's not Odyssey it's Origins Origins oh, Re- Origins <laughs> good <laughs> so glad I'm not a game journalist anymore <laughs> <laughs> my days of misspelling uh titles are over but yeah um that, what, what does that have on Metacritic I wonder 
that's a big move to RPG format that they've stuck to. That has less than Odyssey, but more than it's at eighty-one. So it's um, I don't know why I was trying to describe where the number fell rather than just telling you the number. (laughs) (laughs) Give me your personal impression of where the number (laughs) was. Let me. It's one of those numbers, you know. You know, we have a number that's like greater than eighty, but it's less than (laughs) eighty-three. It's that kind of vibe. Uh, it's weird how incremental that is, but I think that is the right order <laughs> for those games based on what I played of them. Yes, yeah, I agree. Though there'd just be much bigger differences, I think. Yes, agree. I did really love Origins, but I think I wouldn't go back to it now after Odyssey. I think Odyssey's just better. Yeah, I want to go to Atlantis, man. I might just uninstall Valhalla and go play Odyssey again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm going to do this too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was uh, so the first world in the DLC is Elysium, which is beautiful. Um, so it's mm. worth seeing that just for. Oh, lovely! I mean, the original game is beautiful, so I can't imagine <laughs> it's even more beautiful. I'm like, whoa! There is actually oh. now that I think about it, there's a quest. Uh, like once you install the DLC, there's a quest you've got to do to sort of start it. And I actually found that quest incredibly annoying. <laughs> it's like you just got to go through like a tomb or something and find some hidden stuff, but. Uh, there's some interaction that's really not obvious, and I recommend just using a walkthrough if you don't get it. <laughs> right, gotcha. That's good advice. What have you been doing, Alex? Um, I mean, I spent all Christmas being uh, particularly dorky um, and very <laughs> happy about it. Um, I um, installed uh, DOS uh, 6.22, I think it is, um, and Windows 3.1. Um, on <laughs> I, um, on this thing called a uh, so I I got a, a new um, little computer thing so it's called a, a Mister um, M I S T E R except for the M is capital the uh, I is um, uh, lowercase and then the S T are uppercase and E R lowercase so it's like a, that, it, it it came from it's a project like oh god where do I start with this so this thing um, so this thing uh, looks a bit like a raspberry pi so it's like this um exposed uh uh like um uh circuit board um it is actually built like the the, the actual physical system is um it like it emulates old uh consoles computers pretty much anything before about 95 but before playstation basically everything that ran before that point runs on this machine like everything so uh <laughs> So I've been playing a, like a full 486 computer. Um, so I've just sort of taken it back to, I've installed Word 6. And like, so I, I went, I, I, um, I wrote uh, all of my sixth form essays and I did my university essays and my um, uh, dissertation all in Word 6 on my 486. And <laughs> I just wanted to go back and um, man, it felt good because I'm at that age. Um, uh, but like this system is fucking amazing. Um, so it actually, it's a, it's basically like this sort of framework. Mister is a framework is a software framework that runs on, um, a thing called a, uh, a D, uh, or D E D H, uh, 10 nano, which is, uh, which is a development board for, uh, FPGA and FPGA is a, a chip which is programmable so like most chips cpus and things um they uh they are preset with 
their architecture. So they do certain things and all the code you write for it has to be, you know, has to uh, use the instructions that that particular chip takes. Like, so obviously Intel chips being the kind of like the, 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 the thing on PC and things. So everything on PC has to, 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 to run on those chips. FPGA uh, are programmable. So like everything within it um, uh, can be made to behave like anything you like. So this board thing is actually designed for, you know, for designing robot like systems or control systems for robots and God knows what. But it's been taken up by a certain uh, segment of the emulation or the kind of retro game community because it turns out that it's fucking great for running old computers um, uh, because you can make it behave exactly like those computers. So like um, software emulation is good. It's sort of very flexible. Um, and these days, you know, pretty much all computers can, can the performance can be fine on pretty much any computer. But um, there's always going to be an issue with uh, accuracy to a degree, but more so with latency, because software emulation has to run in serial, like one thing has to happen after another. And every step, like as it takes your input and then acts on it and then emulates the sound system and emulates the this and that. I'm not a technical person. I do not know what I'm talking about <laughs> here. But, but like essentially every software emulation adds latency um, because the computers they were designed on originally, um, all the chips, that all the components inside them, um, whether it was an arcade machine or a Super Nintendo, um, they were discrete chips inside them like the sound system and like the main cpu and the graphics elements they all worked uh, in parallel to each other so uh you get this incredibly accurate and incredibly latency free um gaming system and uh, mister is a project which uh, brings together a lot of the cores as they're called for fpag system fpga systems which have been developed over since like 2013, I think it started. Uh, the Mist uh, name comes from Amiga uh, ST. Like so, that's those are the two systems that kind of kind of kitted out or started it all off. And um, so I've just I've just been playing a lot of old systems, and it's just been it's been really really good because, like partly, uh, like you know, I've used DOSBox for a long time and things and. You know, it runs in a little window, or you can make it full screen. But you always know you're running your PC, and and I get very <laughs> restless. And you know, you start off something, and and it doesn't quite run like you remember. There are these weird hitches and oddnesses, and the speed is too fast because they're all all these all the old DOS games, and and it were all programmed to run at certain clock speeds. Uh, or like or they ran as fast as the clock speeds would, would allow them. And on modern computers, it's really hard to slow things down properly to, to make everything work properly. It, it's always been a bit weird. Like uh, Sam and Max and uh, what else? Ultima 6, Ultima 7, they all run like I remember them. And <laughs> Doom as well. Like, like it's so strange to see Doom running on this sort of funny little kind of exposed chipboard with a fan <laughs> kind of like screwed to the top of it. Um, but like what, what's really amazing about it as well is that all these cores are in active development. Like some of them are pretty ropey. Um, I haven't really come across any of those yet, but like this does really does kind of cross so many systems. So, um, like, so looking at, so I'm actually quick looking now, 
so in in the computers the the, the cores that I have installed in it, you, you when you start one up, um, you you kind of put a little uh, mini SD card in it, and um, and you can run a script which just downloads all the cores that are available for the for Mister, and so automatic already installed on it are Acorn Atom and Alice, uh, which I do know about. Like this is red computer that came from. Um, uh, France, um, Altier 8800, which was really early computer, um, Amstrad's of various creeds, Apple One, Apple Two, still on the A's, Beauty Micro, <laughs> now skipping ahead, Oric, uh, the Jupiter, the Coco, um, the Pet, the X Spectrum, Z81, like, and that's just the computers. Like, it, it can also do various um, arcade systems, so you can play Street Fighter um, uh, oh Alpha, God. you can play. Um, well, all the Street Fighters, you can play Knights of the Round Table. You can, it's just. It sounds and, like a, a bite-sized museum. It's incredible. It, it, it totally is. And it, to- it totally is. And like all of this stuff, like if you have a MAME installed on your, your PC, like it's, it, this, it's, it's as, it, you know, this stuff is already at a lot of people's fingertips. Um, but there's something, the way that it plugs on its own into my screen and the way that it behaves exactly like that system and the way that it's a little bit of a hassle to change the core. <laughs> it really isn't very much of a hassle. You just go into the menu and you flip over and it just fl- reflashes the FPGA chip and you're into another system. But um, yeah, uh, I've just, it's a really all in very fiddly, like lots of, fun fiddling to be done with it as you try to make stuff work that didn't work like you know getting dos into it and you know upgrading to windows 3.11 and oh it's kind of heaven but that, <laughs> but i am in my mid-40s and I, I yeah i had no idea that it's <laughs> i had no idea that you were such a emulation dork <laughs> frankly <laughs> that, that like that normal emulators are not strong enough for you like it's it's too loose in emulation the timing is not precise and you need the real thing like got to go straight to the source <laughs> weirdly enough like con- uh, given that it like it, you know it costs so the the board itself costs about 100 if like, delivered from america it costs um, 120 quid um and then i had to spend another 50 quid for um a memory module like it on board it has a certain amount of memory like it has a couple of gigabytes of memory but that memory can't be used by a lot of the um a lot of the cores because it runs at the wrong speed um because because fundamentally the fpga in it is running it is is the hardware, and so it, there are certain con- constraints on on the on the memory that can attach to it. So, so all in all, it costs about one hundred and seventy quid um, to get it running. Um, uh, I actually find I don't really do that much emulation. I haven't really done that much emulation on on PCs and stuff because I find it really boring and fiddly. Like you have to f- f- install so many bits and pieces. So that this thing, when you when you install uh, Mist on it. It just unpacks itself, and then you you connect it to your wireless, and it just downloads everything, and everything just works. <laughs> the fiddling comes with, you know, you know, setting up Windows to the way that I wanted to, and um, choosing the 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 right uh, uh, scanline style that I want. Mm. <laughs> it's that kind of fiddling where it's actually a bit more it's not i haven't had any technical problems with it at all oh except for last night where i couldn't get this so i, I actually started to talk about it just now but 
a lot of the cores are still in development and new cores are being released all the time. And, um, and just launched yesterday was Don Don Patchy, which is um, like this legendary bullet hell um, uh, shooter by a company called Cave. Like this is, you know, it is really is legendary and people didn't really think that um, FPGA would be able to handle the system that runs it because FPGA, like every component that the, uh, the, the FPGA is trying to replicate, it takes up like areas of its entire, again, I'm not technical, but if you imagine like there are certain numbers of sort of sort of bits that can be made to do stuff and this isn't space for it for a lot of stuff, but Don Don Patchy was released and, but I couldn't get it, make it work. It just crashes and I have no idea why, but, um, you know, as a, as a taster for what, what's ahead for it, like uh, somebody's currently working on a PlayStation core, which again, people f- figured wouldn't be possible on this generation of F- FPGA, which is uh, based on the Cyclone 5, um, uh, which has been out for several years now. But um, the like a, a full PlayStation 1 is kind of already working in fairly ramshackle shape for, for now, but, you know, we'll probably get to, you know, perfect form. Oh, uh, I'm not proud, but I'm really happy. <laughs> I've got to say that uh, it sounds amazing, but it's also the most hardware chat we've ever done on the Great Crowbar. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds incredible, though. Like, I, I was wondering, like, um, you started to talk about scan lines and the way that they represent those old games on modern monitors. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing you don't have like a CRT to plug in or an ancient, you know, one of those old TVs that are as deep as they are wide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't. And I think that so. Uh, yeah, and that is the purest way to do it. Obviously, um, like there's this there's this market for um, a particular kind of Sony Trinitron um, monitors, the kind of monitors that, in fact, I saw I watched, saw on a on a, a crime program, like showing some policemen all crowded around like a, a sort <laughs> of a, a CCTV thing, and like I thought, Christ, that TV is would be worth so much money now on on eBay, but like they were all um, playing Street Fighter Two, yeah. an original. <laughs> Regional deployment, <laughs> but like there, what? So, so one of the things about um, the Mister system is that you can buy a fifty-pound board, which you attach to the top of it, um, which then attaches to the pins on this kind of GPIO board, uh, pin thing, um, and that uh, has VGA out on it. Um, but the the board itself has a HDMI out. Um, so if you want to run on a CRT TV with proper real scan lines, then, then um, yeah, like you just have to board buy another board and, and that just fits on the top. Um, and that outputs H- HDMI and VGA at the same time. So you can see it all. I don't, it's, it's like, that's, that's far too far for me. Like, I just, <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm happy as it is. Like, I was just going to say that also that, um, this whole FPA VGA thing, I've been following it for a while because um, um, I've written about um, a company called Analog, which um, has taken this uh, philosophy of emulation um, and is, is become incredibly successful um, de- uh, releasing FPGA-based systems of specific um, consoles. So its first one was... Um, was uh, based on the NES. Then they released a Super Nintendo version called the Super NT. There's a Mega Drive version called the Mega SG, and they're about to launch a Turbo Graphics. Um, uh, and they're all just, they are like you buy this and it only runs the system. And it comes with 
the original cartridges. So you a cartridge um uh, a cartridge input thing. So you so technically you need to have the original cartridges to and to, to play the games, except that you can get uh, a um a jailbroken version of its firmware which will allow you to run uh, ROMs off the off the SD card that plugs into it. So like but this, like, if you go to Analog's website, um, it's designed. I, kept, I think it was, um, oh, what's his, is it Corey Schmidt? Um, Schmitz, who um, is like a graphic designer who's worked on loads of stuff around games, um, does yeah. a lot of logos and, and website designs. He's, he's behind Analog's um, website. It's absolutely gorgeous. Like, you know, Mr. is this kind of exposed chipboard and you're looking at GitHub all the time. But this thing is beautiful fonts and you know like uh the, the the startup music for the um super nt is uh made by square pusher <laughs> so it does this little sort of <laughs> wow. wow 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 and it's like oh you know they commissioned square pusher to do the music so <laughs> <laughs> like so it does run the gamut of of approaches you might make to playing old games <laughs> you could find some really really old school stuff that you, you literally can't you know find anymore like the what was it the panzer dragoon rpg oh uh, yeah, yeah that was a saturn game though i'm not sure that would run on this but um, not yet i mean maybe no. Saturn's going to come later maybe hmm ah the sake of saturn ah memories <laughs> oh memories oh memories that's awesome Alex. that was uh, that's really fascinating i i I would buy one, but I'm into Lego now, so that's the end of, <laughs> that's the end of adulthood for me. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've I've um, I, I've uh, left painting uh, my Gene Steeler Colt um, Warhammer figures, uh, and uh, yeah, unfortunately, I've done a completely other dorky thing. <laughs> so one, one in, one out for dorky. Habits. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yeah, that's the way it works. <laughs> I actually. Um... Uh, a little while ago, I started playing Genshin Impact um, what? because I'd heard. <laughs> I'd You've heard... been playing Genshin Impact. Yes, <laughs> Tom. Is that so hard to believe? I. We've known each other for a long time now, and, <laughs> and you still have the capacity to surprise me. I, I'm still reeling uh, from from the time you played um, Fire Emblem, which it's just <laughs> that was like two years not... ago. <laughs> Two years of and reeling. And now I'm reeling all over again. Genshin Impact. It's got squeaky voices on it. You don't like squeaky voices. No, I I will not <laughs> pretend that I am in any way okay with Paimon, your, your fairy companion, who refers to herself in the third person at every fucking juncture and is always, I think she's supposed to be comic relief, which is painfully unfunny. <laughs> Um, but the reason I played this game is because um, uh, many people, including Graham, had recommended it and also said that it is uh, takes a lot from Breath of the Wild. And specifically, I'd heard that it was like um, takes sort of Breath of the Wild um, open world navigation and um, uh, and systemic like element interactions, but then bases its whole combat system around that, where all of the uh, attacks you can do all the characters you recruit are di- like a themed around different elements and then it's about switching between their attacks to combine those which sounded really cool and it is really cool um but i know the reason that was especially appealing to me is because i i wouldn't say i bounced off breath of the wild i just sort of i spent like 10 or 12 hours with it and then i was 
I, I stopped having fun. Um, I think something went weird, went weird with the balancing where I, uh, everything, too many blood moons happened or something and every enemy was incredibly tough. So I just couldn't get anywhere oh, with it. Um, but anyway, uh, so the idea is something that like, cause everyone expected me to like that game way more than I did. <laughs> you know, everyone who knows my tastes was like, oh yeah, you're going to love this. And then I didn't really. And so the idea of something that was, you know, adjacent to it was, uh, exciting. And I, so I played it first on PC and I wanted to play on gamepad and because it's designed, uh, I guess with Japanese sensibilities, the B button confirms and the A button cancels. And <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find a way. I even plugged in my switch controller because, um, uh, I thought, cause those buttons are in different places on switch controller. So I thought maybe that would work, but I couldn't get that to work. Anyway, uh, I went through the tutorial on PC and then I ended up just getting it on PlayStation instead because it's actually free. Um, so that's nice. Uh, and on PlayStation, the buttons just work the way you expect them to, which is great. But that had one crucial thing ha- that happened there is I went through the tutorial on PC, so I already knew the controls I played on PlayStation. And I didn't get very far. I just did the tutorial on, on PC, and that was it. Then I did. Then I started on PlayStation, and I went through the tutorial again, or um, uh, the first few things. And then I, it seemed to sort of the tutorial seemed to just dry up. Like I was told, I'm trying to. Uh, I have a quest mark on my map, but the quest objective is very vague. Um, and I thought I was heading towards a big city, but as I start to explore the land and I'm, I'm encountering like basic monsters and learning, um, combat and how I sort of fire my weird watery attack at things. Um, I'm making my way towards this, um, city. And along the way, I find this like massive glowing red, monolith thing in the middle of a lake it's like it couldn't look more important it's it's so signposted as like this is the thing you interact with this thing this it looks like you're sort of going to capture it and then like uh you know unlock a fast travel point or something um and i go towards it i can't interact with it in any way it just does nothing um and i can climb it i can sort of stand on top of it but there's nothing to do at the top of it there's nothing to do around it there's just no buttons do anything on it attacking it doesn't work uh so i just kind of swim away and i continue making my way towards this big city um, and, uh, I get to the big city and it's, it's sort of big town problem, uh, and that it's huge and it's, it's like, um, uh, full of NPCs and there's loads of incidental dialogue and stuff, but there's nothing to actually do there. It turns out there isn't a quest. I don't have a quest to be here and I can't talk to anybody. Nothing triggers any quests. And actually when I look at my map again, the marker is not on the city. It's way to the North. So I start heading out to the North, uh, and all this time, like nothing is happening. Like no one is talking to me. Uh, like I'm not getting any new quests. Um, and I can't interact with any of these important looking monoliths. Um, and as I get further North, everything gets way too high level. Like it's clear. I'm not supposed to be here. Everything's like level 25 and I'm level seven. And I am, uh, there's also all these like game systems that I haven't been allowed to engage with. I can't sort of pick up certain things. I can't access certain bits of the menu. Um, and it feels like I'm waiting for the game to start. And yet it's sending me into this incredibly dangerous area. Um, and I quite enjoy this. Like I'm like I have to hide from every enemy. Even like a basic slime in this place can kill me in one hit. So I'm, I have to just run as soon as I see anything and try and like coax enemies away from the bit I need to get past. Then loop back around and sneak past them. And it's I'm actually having a lot of fun with it until I get to a point where it just says, "Oh, you have to turn back. You shouldn't be here. <laughs> like uh, you just have to run away." Uh, it's sort of like an invisible barrier. And it is this is a high level area that you can get to later. But if you're low enough level, they just prevent you from walking into it uh, because 
they correctly detect that something has gone horribly wrong. <laughs> like, this is not supposed to be happening. And eventually I looked up a guide of like, how do you, I can't remember what, the, what my quest objective was, but I Googled that, like, how do you do that? And um, uh, nothing came up for that, but I found uh, other guides that are sort of showing you through the, the first steps and way back on the, like the beach you wake up on when your fairy first contacts you, um, there's like, uh, she like pops out of an altar or something and you're supposed to talk to her. And I think I didn't talk to her and I just moved on. <laughs> and it was because I, I already knew the controls. So I knew how to jump over the, the next barrier and pick up this item and then do get through the rest of the tutorial because I'd done it on PC, but I didn't actually get the tutorial to do that. And if you don't get that, nothing else triggers. So none of the rest of the main quest happens. And uh, so I ended up having to just walk all the way back to the start and, um, uh, and go through the tutorial uh, afresh. And when I when you do that, uh, on your way to that first objective, a fucking huge dragon flies over and like crash lands into a forest. And this is a forest I walked through. It just had nothing in it when I was there. But this time a dragon crashes into it. There's a whole cutscene about that. That cancels your objective. So that objective going to the high level place was never supposed to be a thing I actually did. <laughs> and then that leads you into the city. And then there's all these NPCs that talk to you. And that's when all the rest of the game happens. And all those, like that massive important looking monolith, that is a fast travel point, And you just go up to it and use it. But you can't do that unless you uh, got past that certain bit of the tutorial. <laughs> and so I was walking through like a weird inert ghost version of Genshin Impact for like it was about 45 minutes <laughs> it was like a long time that's weird so basically and, uh, the, it, like normally that you'd put the tutorial like that into this gated sort of boarded off area like even even um uh, uh Breath of the Wild kept you on a plateau yeah yeah I see why they do that now <laughs> <laughs> I, and especially like if they go to at some point, really the the only sad thing about the whole thing was just that it maybe turned back. Like if it hadn't maybe turned back, I'd be really interested to see if I could get to that objective marker. I guess nothing would happen there because there can't actually be a quest there because it's it gets cancelled in the in the critical path. But um, <laughs> I was really enjoying just being way out of my depth and just having to like improvise and figure out ways to um, uh, to deal with stuff. Now that I play it properly, um, I it's. Uh, I haven't. I wouldn't say it's got completely got its hooks into me, but I do really like the general principle of the combat, which is that you have a party, but you only play what was one of them at a time, and uh, mid combat you are meant to switch between them um, uh, because they, like I say, they're sort of elementally themed. And so I have like a, a lady with a, a fire bow that sets fire to things, and that's good if the enemies have wooden shields. You want to shoot them with fire because that'll burn it away. Um, once they're on fire. I want to switch to my electric uh, mage who is going to uh, throw out a little like uh, ball lightning at them. And when electricity hits someone who's on fire, that causes like an overload explosion. Um, and that's true either way around. So they, if they're already electrified and hit them with fire, that happens. And if they're already on fire and hit them with electricity, that happens. And there's all these other things like if they're, um, I feel like if they're frozen and you hit them with ice, there's a melt effect that hits them that then it maybe increases the damage they take. And it feels like for almost every combination of elements, there's some special status that if those two things happen at the same time, then uh, this extra effect happens. And yeah. figuring out which one of those you want to happen and how to like, all of that is then filtered through what kinds of attack do you have? Because with the fire lady, it's a bow. And so I'm just doing single target uh, damage. Um, with the electric lady, she can do like a, 
a big area effect Nova, but it takes a long time to charge up. So I need to be, uh, you know, left alone for a bit to, uh, to make that happen. And then I've also got like an ice, like fighter, I guess, uh, who has a, like a basic sword attack, but then can also freeze things. Um, and, but he does a lot of damage, it seems. And I think that continues. I think you just keep recruiting new characters and they all have it. The, I don't think there's new elements after the after the opening of the game. Like it's going to be the same elements, but it's just about what kind of patterns can they, um, you know, uh, throw those elements out in. What kinds of attacks are they imbued with? And then I think there's there must be some kind of major power differences in these characters that hasn't really come up yet. But uh, the thing, the game everyone else is playing when they say they're playing Genshin Impact is completely divorced from what I'm experiencing because they're all playing like a a a gacha game is that the word where you, yeah. it's about it's sort of like um uh, like a slot machine kind of thing where you are um uh uh drawing trying to draw a character um you're given a random character and there's an extremely low chance of getting the really good ones um and i think you're trying to earn a certain currency to keep having more chances at, at, at pulling that lever um and when I see people talk about Genshin Impact, they're just fucking flipping out because they've got the super rare character. And I not only have I not got to even a point where you get any kind of random character, uh, but I also don't even really know what's good about that character. <laughs> like, why is it cool? <laughs> um, like, does it just do loads of damage? Or is it just, is it just like desirable because it's rare? Um, and, or, or is it, because they're also like named characters with voices and, and uh, I guess backstories and stuff. So maybe people are super into that element. Um, I have no idea, but I I'm kind of seeing that I'll as a good thing at the moment because I've I've been playing it as well, and um, that's been good because um, there's been no sense of it expecting me to spend any money yet. I can see yeah the kind of the the gacha kind of system. Like I don't really understand what the menu is, but I can see that it wants me to put some currency in to you know, to have a chance on a character or something but like yeah like i don't know what any of my characters do either so i'm just sort of muddling way through the world i've not played it yet but from your descriptions it sounds like shin megami tansai um which was like that whole series is about collecting demons that you can then deploy for different elemental effects um albeit in turn-based combat rather than this has like a much more sort of dynamic interpretation of that yeah, a bit. Yeah, because mm-hmm. your characters are, but your characters are much more kind of. You, you have four. You can sh- have four of them available. They're all, they're all on the battlefield at the same time. No, it's only one at a time. They kind of hmm. transform into them. I think. Yeah, it's more like. Oh God. Yeah, I'm not sure what it'd be more like. But it's it yeah, really it's, interesting. I really want to play this now, based on what you, yeah, everything you just yeah, said. Yeah, because I, I didn't know, it's like, I didn't know that it was all like character based in that way. Because I thought, that, yeah, it's like it was Breath of the Wildy, and you know, it's like Fury of anyway. the Furries. That's the last game I can remember where you have a team of characters, <laughs> but you can only play as one as once. <laughs> yeah, Lost Vikings. That's what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh yeah, Trine as well, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah Trine. Yeah, that, that's how yeah. Trine works in single player, at least. Yeah. Um, that's it. A, a really fun consequence of that is like these are your first, your starting team, or not not quite starting because you don't start with them all, but uh, early on you get four characters and the plot is all about them. You know, they're, they're, they're story characters too, but they're treated, even though they're on your team, the whole story is written as if you play as the first character you get and you, you never are anybody <laughs> else. It's always that person. But then right. you get objectives to like 
go and meet Amber at this city that's halfway across the world. And Amber is one of my teammates. I play as Amber most of the time because she's the one with the fire bow. <laughs> and I'm like, I literally am Amber and I'm crossing the whole world to go and find Amber. And like, you'll be Amber right up until you'll find the other Amber in the world and walk up to her and talk to her. And it's only once the cutscene triggers, they switch you back to the original character. <laughs> Yeah, I was very surprised about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> they obviously, I mean, that's the kind of design problem. I mean, more fool me because I would have sat there in the, in the board meeting about how we, uh, the, all the design concepts of this game. And I would have said, well, that's just unsolvable. There's no way around this. This is, this is, doesn't work. Our whole concept doesn't make sense. We can't do this. But apparently you just do it. <laughs> it's just a, oh just yeah, there'll it. just be two of them. It just doesn't make any sense, but no one will care. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do some, uh, some some questions this week? We never do some those. Questions. Yeah. Let's do those. <laughs> Okie dokie. For a change. Uh, I found a question uh, from Joseph uh, Quested. Who, um, so this is it, because of the whole Christmas break thing. This, he actually sent this, um, well, they uh, sent this quite a long time ago, mid-December. So when, when Joseph says, on the most recent episode, I'm not quite sure when that was. Anyway, on the most recent episode, he writes, there was a question about games that should have had competition, but inexplicably don't. I have the reverse question, kind of. What are some examples of a deeply rooted genre leader being dethroned? The first best one I can think of is SimCity's demise at the hands of Cities Skylines, uh, and especially impressive dethroning, considering how unappealing the name Cities Skylines is. Which is true. <laughs> Forever yours. Joseph Quested. Good yeah, it's a weird name for that as well because you don't see the skyline, right? It's top down. <laughs> <laughs> what is a skyline? <laughs> and do you in make multiple cities in a single kind of run? or It's just one really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess every city has multiple skylines depending on which angle you look at it from. <laughs> sure, yeah. And I suppose oh, yeah. over oh, the so course you of your play that you're making multiple cities. For some bizarre reason, I, I was thinking of Skylines as some sort of like futuristic series of uh, you know trains that hover yeah, above like a the city. Sky <laughs> like rail. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think some of those are called Skyline. Actually, uh, that's a good example. I think there are sort of um, there are games that just sort of turn a genre upside down. So I think like Call of Duty, when it comes to right click aiming, down a scope. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that sort of infected the rest of the genre for, for years. And also, perhaps Gears of War wasn't the first to, like, actually, obviously, definitely wasn't the first to invent third-person cover shooter, but the original Gears definitely kicked off an entire, uh, you know, way of shooting in third-person that was really pervasive for about a decade. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. the one that sprang to mind for me was um, uh, PUBG, obviously, kind of popularized the Battle Royale, and then uh, Fortnite has... it's. Like it's not that it's crushed the, the PUBG because PUBG is still doing fucking great, but Fortnite is obviously doing way, way, way better. And um, if you wanted to pick an example where the crown was was removed from one game and put on another, <laughs> I think yeah. that fits. Yeah, because it's. I mean, obviously, it is still huge. But like it's huge on mobile as well. But yeah, the the attention is all on. Like I, like I think it's quite interesting also that. Um, the Call of Duty Warzone, Call of Duty's um, one, um, uh, does lots of things that are absolutely anathema to um, to uh, the PUBG kind of naturalistic sort of when you're out, you're out approach 
because there are all these multiple reasons of, of ways of getting back into the fight after being defeated in that game. Yeah, don't it's you like fighting a gulag and whoever wins yeah. gets resurrected? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a real gulag. <laughs> Subtle. That's how the gulag, the gulag system is is a way for the soldiers to to, to, to defeat death. I mean, that that's well known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think actually when I was trying to think about this, I was struggling. I kept thinking of examples where a new thing came along and was successful, but the old thing didn't didn't become unsuccessful. And that's actually kind of nice. It's good that that's usually the the case. Like it isn't really, it's tempting to look for narratives of like this game crushed the other game. And, you know, we all come from magazines and the classic yeah. headline of the, it's the X killer. It's the doom killer. Yeah. It's the quake killer. It's the, um, <laughs> but actually games don't really kill each other in that way usually. And I think actually the city skylines and sim cities example, uh, obviously it fits that seems to fit that bill really well, but I bet, I mean, what really happened there, it's not like city skylines came along and defeated SimCity and sort of, you know, cause SimCity to do worse. It's that SimCity fucked it. <laughs> they they fucked yeah, up the exactly. game of their own accord. No one pushed them into it. They did, they screwed themselves. And then they didn't do any more. And I think if they if they came out with a new SimCity game that was brilliant, that came out, you know, shortly after City Skylines, I think it would do brilliantly. I don't think that City Skylines prevents them from doing that. Yeah, a bit like um, you know, I think you you mentioned it in the break actually, um, Tom. Where uh, Diablo three, I mean, it's still a popular game. A lot of people play it, and and you know, Diablo four is on the way. But um, a game that um, that consumed more attention right now is um, <laughs> I'm just going to defeat my own argument by which by, which is actually <laughs> stolen from you. I can be forgetting the name of it. <laughs> Uh, uh, Path of Exile. Path of <laughs> God, Exile. I forgot it too for a minute. <laughs> We're so good at arguing. <laughs> Actually, um, this is a bit of an aside, I guess, but um, uh, it doesn't it feel like uh, Valhalla took Path of Exile's level up system? There's sort of this web of skills that you sort of like mm. creep around by investing points because it has this very uh, particular layout where. There's big skills you can unlock that are, you know, major um, new abilities, and you make your way towards those across this web of skills by putting points into just passives that are sort of may may be related, maybe not. Sort of, you know, if you're going towards some kind of like poison uh, ability, then you might have to spend some points on improving your assassin damage to kind of get over there on the web, um, yeah. and that's a very Path of Exile thing, I think. Yeah, very yeah. very much so. But uh, and then Path of Exile nicked that from old Final Fantasy games like 12 yeah that was oh, really? final fantasy yeah. 12 wasn't uh, i didn't it? know that and 13 had a web but it was less interesting but i had um i think 12 had a very very similar thing where there were little nodes that were little oh do a bit more melee damage but then there'd be big ones <laughs> like oh here's a new spell and that's what you right. kind of work towards when uh, on the this kind of like weird checkerboard uh system uh it's a, it's really good i like that system and i think one thing i like about valhalla is that most of it is not visible to you but it's also got a free respec. So if you kind of like discover a load of different abilities and you kind of, you're like, oh, I've, I've actually, I've built a really kind of mishmash on an inefficient build, then I could just reset my skills for free and then just mm. redesign my character, which is great. All RPGs should do that, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I don't see the point in charging players to rebuild their character. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, there was, there was a slight downside to it in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Um, where uh, I think respect did cost something, but like it was trivial. It was a bit of gold or something. Um, and that the problem was that it meant it was in my interest to 
when I'm coming, if I'm going to do an arena fight, I would just sit there and respect my whole character for the arena fight. And obviously right. that's good in the sense that I'm going to do better, but it was just a pain in the ass to do it. And then as soon as the arena fight's over, I want to spec back to stealth. So I got to uninvest all my skill points and remember where I put them all for the, the stealth thing. And it's almost like if you want to go down that road, you need to support it better maybe like let me save loadouts or builds right. or something like if, it, if it's actually it canon that i can just switch into who i am just change up who i am on a dime then uh i'd like that not to be tedious uh, that's a good point um mortal shell was quite good at this given that like the shell is the kind of the body that you occupy and each one has a different skill uh sort of skill set and different kind of specialties uh unfortunately it's very very difficult to change between them you'd have to go back to some sort of like central hub and in right. environments that would you get lost in endlessly, so it's very hard to do. You can just like zip back there until later in the game. Um, but I th- yeah, I think between those two systems, I think there's a, a happy medium that might be actually quite good. I like the Diablo three system where you just got all the skills and you can just mix and match them. <laughs> yeah, however you like. It's I've been playing that lately. We're sort of deep into tangent land now, but um, I've been playing <laughs> Diablo 3 recently. God, I've, I actually had so many different games to talk about, potentially, because I played a shitload of Diablo 3 recently. Um, huh. What inspired and, that? Uh, I, think, I think just a friend was playing it. <laughs> it just reminded me. Um, but it's interesting going back to it now, and it's sort of, I feel like I've my love affair with roguelikes has happened in the intervening time. Um hmm. And especially coming, Hades is the one I've been playing most uh, that's most like Diablo. Yeah. And, uh, oh, actually, I know I was. It's because I, I was uh, thinking about a game design that's, that's sort of somewhere between Diablo and Hades, and so I wanted to brush up on it. Um, uh, and the thing that really strikes me is um, the way health works in Diablo 3, um, I think, is not as good. And it has a problem where... Basically, um, health regenerates really quickly in Diablo 3. Like, it's really easy to get loads of health regen going. And what that yep. means is I don't notice when I'm taking damage. <laughs> like Most of the damage I take is easily mm-hmm. uh, repaired as even during combat. I'm not even noticing my health going down. And so I don't know that there's anything wrong with my build at all or that I'm even getting hit by stuff uh, until that critical point where the rate of damage outpaces my healing and then suddenly my health is shooting down and I'm like, oh fuck, what's happening? And I'm dead. And so you don't have this sense of like, did I play that fight well? Or, you know, is my mm. uh, is my build, did I did my build do better this time than last time? I don't know because there is no uh, variety of outcomes to a fight. It's always, I always end on full health uh, or I die. And Hades is very stingy about healing. It's very hard to get any healing going at all. And um, I think the when you max out your your healing perk, it's like three health after each fight, which is really, really nothing. Yeah. And what it means is you really know... I mean, I also think Hades isn't very good at, at highlighting the moment that you take damage. I sometimes don't realize it's happened. But at the end of the fight, you certainly know, shit, I took a load of hits in that. I, I really fucked that up. I've got to do better. And so you, it pushes you to like learn to actually play better on a sort of execution level. And equally, if you if you get a new skill that totally turns your build around, you notice it because it's like, shit, I didn't take a single hit in that fight. I just annihilated everything. And in Diablo, it's a lot more muddy because it's so generous with healing. And so if I, I kind of think they should be less generous with, with health regen in Diablo. I feel like uh, that's particularly a problem with the like, melee characters in Diablo. Yeah, I'm playing uh, a barbarian, so that checks out. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. So barbarian, whereas if you're the wizard, um, 
happy days, basically. <laughs> just, <laughs> are your lasers good enough or are they not? And that's basically the, <laughs> the extent of the dilemma. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely true because like, particularly with Barbarian, you're getting like attack speed and then you're wanting every hit to regen health. Uh, but you're right that the hordes are so huge, there's no way to actually pass that in the middle of like an enormous melee, especially at higher yeah. levels. I did. I also kind of I ran out of steam with it. Um, I got to Act Four, uh, the sort of battlements one, and I really like that act. Um, but my build had very much settled into like it's just this now. And every time I try a different skill rune, every time I unlock something new, I try it and it's not as good, so I go back to the old thing. Mm. And by the time I got to Heaven, I kind of just ran out of steam for for um, playing that build. Like I've done it so many times now, and I've kind of had my fill of it. I don't think I had that problem with the wizard. I think the wizard was more. I had more interesting alternate builds I could try and, and switch things out. Yeah, you could sort of turn into a sort of Star Crystal Invincible Man, <laughs> which is really fun. Uh, I, yeah. I really like the Wizard. I think like I think there is I think there's a problem with melee builds in that game because like the Demon Hunter is really fun as well. Um, where cause the Demon Hunter is also ranged but can also do kind of rogue stuff where they you can vanish behind them and get rear attacks that do extra critical damage and that mm. kind of stuff so I, I do think there's like i think barbarian is kind of the starter mode and then the other classes and the necromancer is super fun by far. yeah yeah necromancer is great did you ever get as far as this the um the, the the end game stuff because that's where um i kind of find the the campaign and everything up until kind of completing it and then starting doing all the rifts and things um pretty tedious because because once once you start getting the legendary sets of um, or the what epic or whatever they are sets of armor, they completely start changing around your playstyle yeah. and offering you loads and loads of strategy over how you want to play and and so on and you know that's and kind of like um, cr- designing your killing machine really starts sort of setting into motion and that's where I kind of find the game starts coming alive. Yeah, um, um, Act Five the. Um... Reaper of Souls expansion is also just easily by far the best act in the game in terms yeah, of like true. pacing and visuals and uh, enemy design and variety. Um, and uh, it's such a strangely paced game because Act One is enormous and really tedious yeah. to go through over and over again. You kind of play it and you think this is never going to end. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of bored. Yeah. And it's also all the same sort of like fields and stuff. Then you get to Act Three, which is the battlements in the snowy place, and that's a really great act and it's really exciting. Um, and then, yeah, it's just a weirdly paced, very kind of up and down game, I think. I, 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 made, I must I've put hundreds of hours into it. I love it, obviously, but um, I can't wait to see how they address that in Diablo 4. Yeah, this yeah. the other thought I had with playing was, um, should they make a Diablo roguelike? Because looking right. at all these skills, like the, the first, the early Diablos, they forced you <clears> to invest in skills permanently and you didn't know if those skills were any good till you tried them out. Sometimes you, you put one of your precious skill points into something and it, it just turned out to suck. And you could you could just break your build. And that's obviously why in Diablo 3, they went for the easy switch out system where you just, you know, you make no permanent decisions. You can always switch things in and out and just try whatever you want, which is great for that experimentation. But when I was replaying it, I, I was kind of craving, especially with Barbarian, where I just felt like there's one good, one, you know, best build. I kind of started to wish the game, I wish I was doing a run of it where it just, this time, I've only been given the seismic slam with this healing rune in it, and that's not not as good as what I currently have in my my you know perfect build. But if you force me to roll with it, I'd probably discover some interesting builds. Like, oh, I've only got mm. that, and I've got this other thing, 
and then as you sort of progress through a run, you just you just find a small limited subset of these abilities, and you'd be you'd have to figure out how to use them well together. I'd much like I'd much rather they tried to do a mode like that than as they did with Diablo three. They chased PvP for ages, and event like yeah. never never ever ended up in the game. I don't think anyone really cared about pvp like it was always a kind <laughs> yeah. of joke mode in diablo 2 it was kind of a bit of a laugh um but it wasn't anything that you like particularly build for or kind of grind for uh so i think like a kind of roguelike mode um it, it could be the the new version of hardcore mode so like, i don't really care about hardcore mode like if i just get killed once yeah. and then things over uh, i mean that's not very interesting but a, ro- a properly devoted roguelike mode where you're given randomized skills and you pick up random skills as you go through it that would be great for diablo actually that's a really yeah. good show. Yeah. That wasn't the question at all, was it? No. <laughs> I, think, I think we did a great job of uh, not answering the question, really. Um, thanks, Joseph, nonetheless. Um, another question here from um, Zhu Fang, who uh, writes, everyone says that, everyone says that uh, human or humanoid enemies in action games are more fun to fight. So I wonder... What are your folks' favourite non-humanoid, uh, non-humanoid enemies? Which are the most fun to fight? Which? What is the most fun to fight non-human enemy? Is it a robot or a dog? <laughs> <laughs> the two non-humans. <laughs> Robots are good. I think, like, genuinely, like a, a spider bot with joints that you can shoot out. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Getting That's sparky the big kind of, of, of particles um, kind of flying off as you kind of hit bullets hit home. Yeah, like Borderlands 2 um, yeah, went big on yeah. robots in a way that the Borderlands 1 didn't. And I was skeptical about it at first because I, I also usually feel humans are the most fun to fight. But because they had locational damage and different weak spots, and I think you could blow their limbs off, could you? You um, sure could. Yeah, that, that was really satisfying. And then, yeah, like uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, those, are, oh, those, God, yeah. those oh, robots yeah, make extremely shout. sparky things. Also stuff like... And in fact, um, the humans fucking suck in that game. <laughs> They're terrible. <to> <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> really... Yeah. Then, oh, I've forgotten the name of it. There's a Japanese um, action game, like a, three, a Xbox 360 era one that came onto PC recently. Oh, I'll shut up because I can't remember the name, but that's got <laughs> robots to shoot at. So um, robots are good. I like skeletons. Uh, I like skeletons when they smash into little bits. That's the, yeah. my favorite property of a skeleton. <laughs> That's very good. Um, and actually, uh, uh, a subset of skeletons. Um, one of my favorite <laughs> enemies to kill uh, in Hades is the World 2 boss, the Hydra, the Bone Hydra, because it is oh, a yeah. skeleton Hydra. And it does, I think it's all about, I think there's two things that make it really satisfying. One is, it has many heads, and each head has its own health bar. And that means those health bars aren't enormous. Like, they're tough. They're mm. tougher than a normal enemy. But you can chew through one of those health bars, and it's a really, like, sort of meaty, satisfying amount of damage it takes. And when you do it, the head shatters. And so does all of the, the neck bones joining to it, like, in order. So there's, like, chain reaction explosion of cool. bone shards. And that just feels so fucking good. And doing that, like, you get to do that, like, I guess, is it nine times in a fight? Um, and, yeah, it just feels good every time. Um, I, I should say, uh, apart from that exa- example right there, we failed. We've totally failed to answer the question again, because the question is non-humanoid enemies. Uh, we then described humanoid robots and <laughs> human skeletons. Hydra, the Hydra is non-humanoid. <laughs> and yeah. Hydra's fine. That's good. That's good. But um, 
I think like sort of maybe coming it from the other side because uh, I'm just trying to think of the enemies that I hate fighting and they're generally um, enemies that don't aren't in my eye line in a in a uh, first person game. So dogs, I don't like fighting dogs because mm. they scooch really fast. Um, and they are, <laughs> oh, that, that goddamn scooching they do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they scooch fast and they are you have to look down to 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 to, to, to see them but also as and humans can't look down you, well all they yeah, they can't look up and you can't look down it's like it's <laughs> we will never connect <laughs> that's why we're fighting if only we could look each other in the eye we'd be friends make an accord <laughs> so, but <laughs> I'm just picturing like a human resolutely staring at the ceiling while a dog stares at the ground and they're both whacking at each other with <laughs> flailing, snapping and flailing at each other. There's something down here, but I don't know what it is. All I can see is knees. <laughs> um uh, because they run toward, like dogs only run towards you, and uh, you have to look progressively far further and further down, which is more and more annoying. <laughs> I, I, this but is a fighting odd point, job yeah. in GoldenEye 64. Which is, and then I also hate uh, small flying enemies. They're really annoying as well. Yeah, they suck. Yeah. They always suck. But uh, games don't seem to have learned that. I, what you just mentioned reminds me of um, both, so slimes in Dark Souls that will just drop on you from the ceiling. Mm. Uh, because actually famously gay players do actually rarely look up in games. Um, <laughs> so putting enemies up there is good, which is why, um, oh, what the thing, the horrible kind of uh, tentacle things that hang off ceilings, barnacles, barnacles, barnacles in uh, Half-Life. Um, yeah, likewise, it's just, yeah. Uh, both of those are horrifying because they're just out, out of your eye line. Um, I don't find them fun to fight, but I find them very effective as being like sort of, you know, scary. They're very scary. You 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 uh you you smile and nod sagely and say, "Nice move, game." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm always doing that. <laughs> I love this. Will be controversial, but I love to kill Greasels in Deus Ex One because <laughs> they're so they are they are a man-made abomination <laughs> and uh, they're so horrible and so nasty to fight. They can poison you if they hit you, um, mm. but it's very satisfying to kill them. And I think actually that's, I think fun to fight and fun to kill are almost opposites because the things that are most satisfying to kill are the things you hate fighting, like mm. fucking moles mm. in Spelunky 2. Hate to fight them, but every time they die, I'm like, ah, oh, fucking yes. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I think Horizon Zero Dawn is actually a really good shout for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that sort of like caps both points where they're really fun to yeah, fight. You can sort of blow up sort of, uh, so they have, a lot of them have sort of tanks of, elemental oil attached to bits of them and if you hit them with the right type of arrow it just blows up and they're sort of toppled to the side but it's still every fight feels like a boss fight sometimes um yeah. but it's really satisfying um and also you go into it like you do loads of crafting and you you know it's gonna be this sort of grueling challenge and uh, so that it also gives you that sense of being satisfying to kill as well it's really good it's a yep. good shout thank you sue for that question uh, and our final uh, question for this evening comes from Matthew Cooksley, Cooksey, <clears throat> who writes, Hi Crates, thanks for your recommendation of Teardown. 
which was our game of the year last year, uh, wasn't it? It was, wasn't it? It got the most votes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ted Allen has been a perfect Christmas game for our downsized family to gather around and cooperatively offer suggestions as to where milliseconds can be shaved off by blowing through walls and planking gaps to each objectives. It made me think of some other single player games we played cooperatively. FTL was great, also on your recommendation years ago. And when I was older, old world uh, with the whole sitting uh, family sitting around and experiencing it together. I'm sure I've heard you mention more on the podcast before, but have you played any single player games recently that work well in this way? My wife and I are currently enjoying The Witness and my brother and his partner loved The Outer Wilds in a similar fashion. Maybe puzzle games are the way to go. Cheers, Cooksey. That's really nice. I, yeah, like um, it's really nice that um, these games uh, other people are finding fun, but also, yeah, like um, I know that I haven't actually played it in this way with you in this way, uh, Tom, but um, FTL, it's nice that that's being appreciated yeah. elsewhere as well. Yeah, I so I haven't been doing this much in lockdown, obviously, um, but uh an idea that we had that we haven't tried out yet. Um, before Spelunky 2 had online multiplayer, it's now, it now has it, but it's sort of in beta form, I think, still. Um, we were planning to try a run where we use Steam, um, what's it called? Share play? Steam, mm. Steam play? <laughs> the, the thing where Steam lets you play a LAN game as if it was um, uh, online. Uh, we were going to do it where just like, one of us, we're just playing a single player game of it and just one person does level one, next person takes over for level two, next person takes over for level three. And so you're kind of having to roll with the decisions and the state that the last player has left you in. Um, and we're all watching it, obviously, like we're sort of streaming it so we can all, um, we all see each other play. We never actually got around to trying that, but I still think that could be fun. Yeah. Actually, one of the things that's been interesting playing a lot of the old games that are on the mist I was talking about earlier is that um, a lot of them, like a lot of the console games are very much designed for two players or at least very much acknowledge the fact that more than one player is going to be playing, even if that they're fundamentally a one player game, like, you know, like the Mario games, which have two player games where you, you both have a stock of your own lives and you alternate. So when you die, the other player, player two gets to go, um, which is, you don't really see in games now. Like, you know, it's just Mm. the, the acknowledgement of another player in the room isn't really there anymore. I thought also that, um, um, that like, uh, as a family, like, um, we got, uh, Luigi's mansion three recently, which is again, totally single player, but, um, there's so much going on and so many sort of options available at any time. And, you know, there are little puzzle, like minor puzzles and things to, to, to solve as well. That that's been really good sort of with our kids kind of shouting at each other about kind of collecting rubbish and hoovering up stuff and how to approach killing ghosts and stuff. It's, I really like Luigi's Mansion as well. <laughs> such a good game. I just remembered actually, this isn't a single player game, um, but um... Alex, you and I were going to try that Archon mode in um, uh, StarCraft, weren't we? Oh, yeah. Like, where it's oh, yeah. co-op, co-op RTS. Yeah, yeah, I would still want to do that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that, yeah. I, re- I recommend it because I've, I've played it with, with uh, Jack quite a lot of times. Yeah, that'd be really good. That's oh, cool. um, Spelunky's actually a really good show. Um, our kids played um, Spelunky in that way 
you know, sort of discovering the secrets. Like they'd be goading each other as well. You know, one, <laughs> you, know, you know, do do that run, go that way, do that challenge kind of style, um, you know, play, which is, I think they got both got a lot out of. <laughs> yeah, I was play, um, that's... <laughs> Sorry, I, I can't play um, Splunky with Emma. We tried it once and it was, it's <laughs> <laughs> just an absolute source for arguments. <laughs> you know, it's very, very good. I remember I played co-op with um, Nika, who's uh, on this podcast uh, once long ago. Um and she was her confidence in the game was so low uh, that she asked me to sacrifice her on the altar so that I would get like a free item. <laughs> she, she wanted me to kill her just to get like some fucking climbing gloves or spectacles. <laughs> you like I'm not on. doing that. <laughs> I'll only hold you back. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, it's like the heroic sacrifice, except nothing's gone wrong yet. It's just like <laughs> we're perfect, both perfectly fine. Just it's too late for me. Go on, <laughs> get some spectacles out of my corpse at least. <laughs> incredible what a game I did not do it <laughs> actually it would be hilarious like if she was if she was sufficiently noble that she was going to force the issue uh, she could have tried to knock herself unconscious on an altar because <laughs> that's the only way you can sacrifice yourself so you'd be like standing on the altar trying to throw a rock up so that it bounces back into your own head so that you can knock yourself out <laughs> Well, I think that's um, that's all the questions that uh, uh, we're going to go answer tonight, um, and uh, and that's it for tonight. I think. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, uh, you can hang out with us and our community on our Discord channel, uh, which you can find the address to on our website, which is at CreightonCrowbar.com. If you have a question for a future episode, send it to us at questions at CreightonCrowbar.com or tweet at us. At Crazy and Crowbar. Uh, you can also watch this show on or listen to it, I should say, with a picture on YouTube, which is at <laughs> YouTube slash Crazy and Crowbar. Crazy and Crowbar is kindly funded by our Patreon backers. If you'd like to know more about supporting our podcast, like all our wonderful supporters do, and our spin offs, of which there have been several lately, uh, helmed by Tom Senior. Uh, take a look at them on our feed if you haven't come across them uh anyway if you'd like to uh know more a little more a little more about um, helping to fund us uh you'll find us on patreon at patreon uh slash uh, dot com slash crane crowbar i think that's it have i done all the housekeeping I that think was so. that was actually surprisingly smooth like this it all yeah. never goes that smoothly <laughs> the press i've been practicing all christmas for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thanks for this never well, <laughs> I broke it. You can do the round now. Come on, you broke you broke my spell. I broke it. I've been very smooth on this podcast. <laughs> Alex Wiltshire. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> there was a slightly jarring sentence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been a mess on this podcast Tom Francis <laughs> and I've been the sandpaper of the podcast Tom Senior <laughs> thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening. Bye. Bye.